and welcome to episode number two of The Shift, the weekly podcast for nurses and midwives proudly presented by New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. I'm your host, Katrina Lee, and today's speaker is Dr. Alessandro DeMeo. Alessandro is a Global Health Fellow at Harvard Medical School and the co-founder of NCD Free, which is a social movement against non-communicable diseases. He recently spoke at the Professional Day of the NSWNMA's 70th Annual Conference. As the leading cause of death in today's society, Alessandro talks about the challenges presented by NCDs. And here is Dr Alessandro DeMeo. So as Norman mentioned, my name's Alessandro. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School, and I've spent the last six years looking at um, NCDs. And I'm going to give you in one hour basically a, a summary of about 10 years worth of um, global changes in epidemiology and policy um, and all of the different sort of forces that go into creating the situation that we're in, um, the leading causes of global death. And we'll get into that in a moment. So NCDs, it sounds very technical, and the, next, the last presentation was everything about you can, what you can catch by not putting your gel on or by sneezing on the person next to you. We're going to forget all of that now and talk about everything you can't catch from the person next to you, so you can get as close as you want to uh, your friend beside you. You definitely can't catch any of these. So NCDs are a group of diseases defined by what they're not. Never a great start. So it's the non-communicable, the things you can't catch. And why on earth would we have a name for the leading causes of global death based on what it's not? Well, in part, it's for a number of different reasons, but the main reason is that this was once the leftover agenda in global health. And what was the once the leftover agenda in global health, the things that didn't particularly matter on the global health agenda, are now the leading causes of both deaths and disability uh, around the world. But what's really important to understand is that what seems like a very diverse and unrelated group of diseases are actually inextricably linked. And we're going to look now at the WHO 4x4 table of NCDs. So about 10 years ago, the world started to wake up to non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and chronic lung conditions or respiratory diseases. Now, there are a number of other conditions that you can't catch by sitting too close to the person next to you. But for political reasons, they weren't included in what's called the big four, the big WHO four by four uh, table here. What's really important, though, when you look across those four diseases and you think, well, cardiovascular disease, it's, a, it's stroke and it's heart disease. Diabetes, well, diabetes sort of feeds into that, but also from that. It's also related, both of them related to obesity. Cancer, well, a third of cancers you can catch from someone else but two-thirds you can't. Some of them are linked to alcohol, which goes back to cardiovascular disease, and some of them are linked to obesity, which goes back to cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And finally, chronic respiratory diseases, things like COPD, asthma, chronic lung conditions. And you think, well, what do all of these have in common? So very early on, when we were trying to develop a global strategy, a global framework for NCDs, they developed this four by four table. And this is probably one of the most important things to take away from, the, from this presentation today, is that we have four major diseases that account for about two thirds of global deaths and four major modifiable shared risk factors, things that we can change at a population and an individual level to actually start to make an in, serious inroads on not just one, but three or even four of these diseases at the one time. 
This is what the top 10 leading causes of death in 2012 look like. And so in case you didn't believe me, we've got ischemic heart disease at the top, followed by stroke, COPD, and then finally we start to get into the infectious diseases. The top three leading causes of death in 2012 were all from NCDs. So you might say, well, Sandro, a hundred years ago, these were such a non-event that they were called the non-events. They were called the non-communicable diseases. The things that killed people a hundred years ago, what were they? They were nutrition issues, they were water and sanitation issues, they were infectious issues. People didn't have enough to eat, people were going to the toilet where they drank, where they ate, um, and everyone was, in, was dying of infectious disease. So how on earth have we got from that situation then to the point now where these things that were so unimportant, they were called the non-communicable diseases, the, the things we don't need to worry about, to the point now where, in fact, they, they cause two-thirds of global deaths and are the leading cause of deaths in, here in Australia, but also where I did my PhD in Mongolia, in the US, in China, in almost every country around the world except for, for a small pocket in Africa. How on earth have we got to the stage now where, where this is the case? Well, slightly controversial, but it's due to a number of reasons. First of all, absolutely, it's major gains in the so-called 20th century agenda. So mass-scale vaccination that we've been able to wipe out, almost wipe out, and, th and thanks to billionaires in America, probably soon wipe out whole diseases from the planet. We we've done that already and we'll do it again soon feeding people, having a more um, sustainable uh, and uh, equitable food system, although we, with that has come other challenges, building toilets, building uh, sustainable and safe water supply. All of these things have made huge inroads on the 20th century agenda, so it's not all bad news. In part, that's meant that people live longer, but also for the first time in history, more than half of the global population lives in cities. So more people now live in cities than not, and that's never been the case in the history of the planet. A really important element is the globalisation, the westernisation and the homogenisation of our global food supply. So what we eat in Australia, increasingly people eat in China, increasingly people eat in Brazil, increasingly people eat in Italy. And that makes a huge difference when we're talking about food-related chronic disease which is a major driving cause, in fact, the leading driving cause, and we'll get to that in a second, of NCDs. But absolutely part of the problem has been that for probably the first 30 years of the global epidemic, the political awareness was not there. That there was a, because of the lead time between risk and exposure and the development of these diseases, the fact that a child in the first thousand days of life might be setting down the predisposing factors to heart disease in 40 years' time. When we have a political system that runs on three-year cycles, it's very easy for these diseases to be put aside. It's very easy for prevention, primary and secondary prevention, as, um, as we've, we've heard about before, to be put aside. And so there has been a, an element of political neglect. And we've only really seen these become major political issues in the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years and particularly in the last seven years, around the same time that we've had the iPhones, we've started to wake up to NCDs. It's a bit frightening. So coming back to that one more time, four diseases, four modifiable risk factors. Let's have a look at each one in a bit more detail. And I'm going to look at the global perspective, because that's, that's, the, that's the work that I do. 
And these, these slides will all be available online afterwards. So we know that we have around 285 million people living around the world with diabetes, but what's really important is actually that there's huge variation within Australia, within the Asia-Pacific region and around the world in prevalence of diabetes, ranging from low sixes all the way up to over 10, uh, 12, 13%. We have some of the highest rates of, NC of diabetes here in the Asia-Pacific region, and we'll get to a specific country example uh, in a moment. We know that about 70% of diabetes globally cases occur in low and middle income countries. Now some of you might think, well, hang on Sandro, 70% of the global population also lives in those countries, and that's exactly the point. And we'll get to that in a second as well. And finally, linking diabetes with development, we know that in Mozambique, for example, diabetes care for one person can cost about 75% uh, of a person's income, which is often a family's income. And suddenly you, you start to see how diabetes care and diabetes um, in developing countries becomes not just a health issue and not just a cultural issue and not just a societal issue, but an economic and a development issue. So you guys know all of this. We're talking about mainly three different types of diabetes. The vast majority is type 2. But let's look at what's happened in the last 30 years, or 35 years. So Australia, 1980, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes uh, was about 1%. Today, it's around 7%. And we believe that pre-diabetes and diabetes in adults is around 25%. For every person with diabetes, roughly, there's, a, there's one person who has it and doesn't know. What's really scary, though, is this slide, is that China, you might think, well, China's sort of the, the sleeping dragon, it's the, it's the burden of the future, we need to get it right in Australia and then we can start working on developing countries. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. China in, in 1980 had roughly the same prevalence, today it has a much higher prevalence and some estimates of pre-diabetes and diabetes are up to 50% of the Chinese population. Uh, India we see very similar results but for slightly different reasons. And I'm going to show you a few graphs, and you, you can't necessarily see them in detail from where you're sitting, but you don't need to, because what I want you to do is just kind of glaze your eyes over, for those of you who that hasn't already happened for, um, and stare up at the graph. And what you'll see is not what most people assume, that as you go across... So on this side, we're going from low-income to high-income countries, poorest to richest, and you might think, well, as we get richer, people are getting fatter, and therefore diabetes is getting higher and that's not what you see here. You see in the upper middle income countries, in fact, the um, age standardised prevalence of diabetes in those 25 and older is uh, highest. And then if you look at regions, so we split the regions, the UN regions of the world, um, WHO regions, and in fact, one of the highest regions in the world is the Middle East region there, the EMR. That's the EMR, and that's the upper middle income. So let's quickly look at heart disease and stroke. So we know that cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of global deaths. Kills around 17 million people a year, representing approximately one in four people globally. Uh, we know that these deaths are expected to climb to around 23 million by 2030, but what you may not expect is that 80% of cardiovascular disease mortality already occurs in low and middle income countries. So the poorest sort of uh, three quarters of the global population. If we look at lung diseases, we know it causes about 7% of deaths worldwide. The 250,000 people die each year from asthma, which is largely, which is 
totally uh, treatable, uh, largely younger people um, and due almost exclusively to uh, limitations in access. But also importantly, and this comes back to the previous presentation, is that we start to see not only are NCDs this diverse group of diseases that people sort of think how on earth and why on earth are we lumping them all together, we've hopefully explained that in part already, but also we're, we're realising more and more that between NCDs and the so-called uh, traditional agenda of global health, HIV, AIDS, uh, TB, malaria, as well as COP, COPD and, and lung cancers, that there is... Uh, everyone's starting to cough. Um, that there's a strong relationship between poorer outcomes at a population and an individual level between, for example, diabetes and malaria, diabetes and TB, um, HIV and lung diseases, um, and COPD, obviously, and cancer. And that brings us then to cancer. So cancers, again, cause approximately one in nine or 11% of global deaths. Ex deaths are expected to increase dramatically by 2020. And again, we've got multiple factors at play here. So there are infectious causes, there are nutritional causes, there are environmental causes, and they're all causing uh, disease on a massive scale in different ways in different regions. Uh, so you would have seen the uh, concerning evidence that's coming out very large scale um, in China around environmental pollutants, particularly air and water pollutants and their links with um, rising population levels of cancer. Again, I know probably epidemiology on a Wednesday morning um, doesn't really float many boats, but um, I just want you to kind of scan your eyes across this. And once again, this is the estimated annual number of new cancer cases in 2008. And then the green part on top is 2030 by income groups, so poorest to richest. And again, where do we see the largest burden? I realise we also see the largest number of people, but even if you look at the comparisons between the green and the pink, uh, we're seeing dramatic increases, the most dramatic increases in the lower middle income group, those who are least able to afford, prevent and cope with uh, the outcomes. And finally, mental illness. Uh, we know that around 20% of the world's children and adolescents um, are estimated to have uh, some sort of mental uh, disorder. One in two of us in Australia will suffer from, de from depression or anxiety in our lifetime. Um, and it's ranked as the leading cause of disability because of the time over which it affects you um, in your life uh, worldwide. Okay, so we come back to the magical 4x4 table, which doesn't include mental illness for those of you who are thinking that, uh, and that's true, and there's political reasons for that, and we can go into that if you want to uh, later, otherwise I'll run out of time. So let's quickly now look at the common shared risk factors. Um, tobacco remains legal despite killing 5 million people a year. Around one person dies every minute from secondhand smoke. And we know that, you know, the, the, the famous quote of um, tobacco is the only thing that if used exactly as directed will kill one in two of its users. Alcohol, uh, the harmful use of alcohol continues to result in around one in 10 deaths. It's the leading cause um, for people, um, for young people. It's the third leading cause, risk factor for disease burden worldwide, and it's the leading cause uh, in the Americas. And here we can sort of see, again, 
uh, looking across the regions of the world, obviously the Middle East um, with the Muslim influence, lower prevalence of alcohol consumption, lower levels of alcohol consumption, very high levels in Europe, Russia, Australia, Argentina, um, and small pockets of Africa. Um, but what is concerning is we're seeing also rising uh, amounts of alcohol consumption in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, and in North Asia. And America refuses to tell us what they're drinking. <laughs> this is a big one, unhealthy diets. So unhealthy diet is one of the four again. And we've seen dramatic changes in the global diets over the last 30 years. As I said before, the globalization of food systems, the homogenization of food systems, um, and the, uh, and the um, increasingly processed nature uh, of our food systems. And so with this global change um, has come obviously what we call the nutrition transition. So the nutrition transition, the idea that as countries get richer, as they go through the traditional epidemiological transition, so from infectious diseases to the new diseases that we've been talking about, these, NC, these pesty NCDs, they change their diets at the same time and the two are inextricably linked. And so as we've seen a dramatic transformation over the last century, we've also seen a dramatic rise in obesity around the world. We now are at a point where we have around 2 billion people living on this planet who are overweight or obese. It's about the same as the total global population in 1927. As major life expectancies grow now, also uh, this, this, um, this is now the number one risk factor for disability-adjusted life years globally. It's also a risk factor for other NCDs. So we know that it's not just a risk factor for disease itself, but it's a risk factor for other NCDs which can predispose to further, um, further disease. And it's an outcome of, uh, in part, a globalised food system and a, and a part of um, the globalised trade and the globalisation um, and the commodify, commodification um, of our food systems in the last uh, 50 years. And finally, if we look at physical inactivity, it's the, main, it's the main cause for approximately one in four cases of even some types of cancers, diabetes and obviously heart disease, and it causes um, about one in, death, in 20 deaths globally. So if we look here again, it's the age standardised prevalence of overweight. And again, we see this dramatic increase as we increase in uh, income, going from low income to high income, but with a peak in the upper middle income um, region. Uh, and again, this is, this, is some, so this is overweight and obese, and this is something that a lot of people find surprising. They expect that Australia is fatter than uh, poorer nations, but actually we're seeing a peak in um, obesity and overweightedness in uh, upper middle income countries who, again, have less vastly less resources to cope with the enormous financial um, uh, results. And here, the main point of this slide is really just to show you, again, this is infant and young child overweight trends from 1990 to 2015. Again, it's looking at the four income groups out outlined by the World Bank. And I've put a big whopping red line straight through the middle. Um, basically, the point here is that everyone, it's, it's on the increase everywhere. Um, there's, not, there's not a place in the world where childhood obesity is not going up. And whether it's the lowest income or the highest income, we're seeing dramatic increases in childhood obesity. 
Okay. So let's just go back to the basics now of NCDs, and I'm going to use this opportunity to dispel some myths. So if you have sort of... Um, a lot of what we've, what we've spoken about so far is looking at the global uh, epidemiology, the burden of disease. These are kind of six key nuggets of information that I want you to take away today as healthcare professionals and as opinion leaders in the healthcare space to have conversations about, to think about and to reflect on uh, how it influences not only just your practice, uh, your profession, your professional group, but also maybe even um, how you vote at the next federal election. So first of all, NCDs are not a small problem. NCDs are not a problem of tomorrow. NCDs are the leading cause of death today. And in 2008, they caused around 36 of the 56 million deaths. Number two, hopefully by now you've realised that NCDs, diabetes, heart disease, cancers and lung diseases in particular are not diseases of the rich. People often think that, you know, oh, those obesity, you know, that, that's a problem of like rich, white, fat, lazy American men. Well, hopefully by now in the presentation you're realising that that's in fact not the case. That 85% of NCDs occur in the world's poorest populations. And it's only a very, very small proportion, as I said, in Africa who are still struggling with very high rates of HIV and infectious diseases and very soon will pull themselves out of that, will pull themselves to the brink of poverty to the point that they can start to afford to get NCDs as well. That NCDs cause poverty, but also NCDs entrench poverty and poverty causes NCDs. So it's this cyclical relationship between NCDs and poverty. And it's not just out there in other countries, in poor countries, it's also here at home. We saw the research recently published on food deserts in Australia. The poorer suburbs have poorer access to healthcare, poorer access to good food, poorer access to places, safe places to exercise, poorer access to uh, programs for kids to be learning from an early age how and what to eat. Um, how to live a healthy lifestyle, people are travelling longer distances, so therefore at home less. All of these things compound each other, and poverty ends up causing diabetes, heart disease, cancer. But the enormous toll of a lifelong illness, a lifelong disability, in turn has an enormous economic toll on a family, not just in Bangladesh, but also here in Sydney. And here are some of the relationships uh, from the WHO on how poverty actually relates. This is more looking at low and middle income countries, but the analogy can be drawn, analogies can also be drawn to lower socioeconomic groups in rich countries very easily. So you start with poverty at the household level, which is a reflection of poverty uh, in low and middle income countries. They have increased exposure to modifiable risk factors as a result of poverty. Globalisation, urbanisation and population ageing we've talked about. The increased exposure, for example, tobacco and alcohol causes a loss in income directly from unhealthy behaviours, but they also cause non-communicable diseases. Diabetes takes 75% of your family income to treat, so suddenly you have a loss of household income from poor physical status and premature death of maybe the person who's driving the family income but also of a major part of your wage disappearing. And finally, because you're poor, you have limited access to effective and equitable healthcare services. And this is the same in Australia as it is anywhere. We can argue about this, but um, there's good evidence. 
And finally, you end up with loss of household income from high costs of healthcare as well. And whether they're the, the, the direct costs of healthcare or the fact that you're taking a day a week off, you lost your job because you can no longer, you know, you no longer feel your fingers or whatever, you're losing your, your vision, whatever it is, you end up with this loss of household income due to the indirect and direct costs of NCDs and we start the whole cycle again and the whole thing becomes not only a cycle but sadly intergenerational as well. And here we see again, so this is looking at total deaths by broad group, um, if I can, there we go, great. And the point here is that the standout major, uh, so this is again total deaths, so this would be reflecting the large populations in this country, but if you look at the proportions within the countries, pink is non-communicable diseases, yellow is communicable diseases and green is injuries. And even within lower middle income countries, the poorer countries, uh, you end up having a larger proportion of NCDs as well. And this is the probability of dying from a non-communicable disease across the world. Again, my approach to epidemiology today, guys, is to keep your eyes as blurry as possible, take your glasses off, because you don't need to be able to see the nuance in that map to work out that there is a common trend there, that the probability of dying is not rich, white, fat, lazy American men. Number three is that NCDs are not diseases of the aged. We do, absolutely, we have an ageing population. 11% of the world is currently under 70. It's going to double by 2050. But already more than 50% of NCDs occur in people younger than 70. And there's no one probably in the community that knows better than nurses that we are seeing patients younger and younger and younger with what were adult onset diseases not very long ago. That NCDs do not just affect men. The, uh, they're the single biggest threat to female health and development worldwide. It's a quote from Helen Clark. And they cause about 65% of global uh, all-female deaths. But what's really important is to actually think slightly beyond the burden of disease itself. Because if you have a disease that affects, even here in Sydney, if you have a patient who has a disease, let's say that he's a rich, white, fat, lazy American man, man and he comes in and he's got diabetes, and he's going to have diabetes for the next 20 years, and he's going to need someone to take care of him, and he's going to need someone to take time out of work, out of employment opportunities, out of educational opportunities, and stay at home and take care of him, I know this is a gross generalisation, but it's an accurate one. Globally, the burden tends to still fall on females. And in developing countries, the burden falls on young females. And so suddenly, this global burden, this enormous burden that we have, even if it is in men, the direct and indirect causes are economic barriers to economic and social development through education and employment opportunities, predominantly in women and young women. Number five is really important, that NCDs are not diseases of laziness, regardless of what our Prime Minister will say, and I admire the fact that he is a Rhodes Scholar and he can run a marathon. Um, I still don't believe that it's a disease of simple, simple laziness. Um, there's too much evidence that NCDs are linked to the opportunities afforded to us when we're born, in early childhood, in education, in employment, in ageing, and ultimately in the way that we also die. And finally, when you're all thoroughly depressed, here's the, the upbeat finisher, that actually 80% of diabetes and heart disease and a third of cancers can be preventable 
with the technology that we have today. So although NCDs are a threat, they're a huge threat to our health already, they're a threat to our economy, causing enormous burden on our healthcare system, social, political, cultural, and also geopolitical threats, they're also an opportunity to rethink a whole number of different structures and systems within our society and build a, a healthier uh, future for our country. So what can be done? Well, a famous Norwegian uh, minister, they're far smarter than us over there, um, he famously said, we know what we need to do, we just don't know how to get re-elected after we've done it. But uh, an even smarter man, the head of the UN, said that responding to NCDs is a political issue, not a technical one. We know what we need to do, we just need to have the political will, the societal will, ultimately, we're a democracy, uh, to actually do it. We have the cost-effective solutions, and we, most of us know what needs to be done, but it's actually translating this into political action through scientific evidence, which we have, and societal support and advocacy, and that's where um, you also become crucially important. I don't know how we're going for time. I can talk for hours. Um, great. So these are, if you're, if, for those of you who are sort of thinking, oh my gosh, when's he going to stop? Don't worry about these next seven slides. But for those of you who are on the edge of your seat thinking, my God, NCDs, I want more, here are seven things that you guys should go and look up in more detail, things that have happened in the last 10 years that have changed the face of global health and that have brought NCDs, the NCD agenda, to where they are today. And I was only ever going to touch on them. So the first one is a fantastic series by the American-based open access journal called PLOS on big food. If you have an interest in big food and in the food system, I absolutely recommend that you look this up. These slides will be available, so you don't need to write this down. The second was a United Nations high-level meeting that happened in 2011. It was the second time in history that a high-level meeting of this, ha of this nature happened on a health issue. The first was in 2001 on HIV-AIDS. And it really heralded an, an awakening of the global community to NCDs and changed completely the global health landscape. The Lancet has, has had now four sensational series on NCDs. Latest one had a great piece by our colleague at Melbourne Uni, Rob Moody. And just this year, there's been a new series on obesity. Very interesting if you're interested in policy level, policy changes uh, to address obesity. Really fantastic series in The Lancet that's open access. Thankfully, the world is starting to wake up to NCDs, so we've now set, in 2012, at the World Health Assembly in Geneva, we set a 25 reduction by 2025 target for NCDs. This was, this was a good first step. And then the second step was then a year later when we outlined a global action plan with nine sort of smaller um, aims and ambitions. And then finally, in 2014, 2015, we commissioned a really long status report to basically tell us we're not doing anything about the problem um, and that governments should do more. Um, I, I, anyway, yeah, it was, it's a good report, but that, the, that was basically the outcome. We can probably, it's like tweet-sized um, outcome. But um, interesting reading if you're, if you're uh, wanting to know more. And finally, obviously, the, one of the big things of this year, the announcement of the new Sustainable Development Goals to replace the Millennium Development Goals, it will set the, the pave work for the global development agenda for the next 15 years. And unfortunately, in, 20, in 2000, when they brought in the Millennium Development Goals, the eight goals that have guided what we've done to address development as a global community since, 
They largely overlooked NCDs, big mistake, big missed opportunity. Uh, they're not going to do that again uh, this year with the new um, global sustainable development goals, and they'll be announced uh, very, very soon. So that's what can be done and what's, what has been done at a global level, but now I just wanted to give some quick slides on what we can do as a, as a health community, and particularly um, as an enormous and powerful workforce and um, important part of the healthcare system that is um, the nursing and midwifery um, community. So first of all, as Norman said, we are doing healthcare all wrong. There's no question about it. The future of healthcare has to be built from prevention. That, whole, that old sort of analogy of we're going to the bottom of the cliff, all these, people are falling, all these people are jumping off the cliff and we're going to the bottom with our ambulances and our MRIs and our very expensive uh, surgery and we're fixing them up and, and then they go back up to the top of the cliff and they fall off. Instead, we could just build a fence at the top of the cliff and the problem would largely be solved. Now, unfortunately, it's not that simple, but Australia currently spends about 2%, and I'm being generous there, of 9%, so of, of our GDP, recurrent health expenditure in Australia is about 9%, and of that we spend between 15 and 2%, it's being cut, on prevention and public health. Now this is significantly lower than our friends across, um, across the strait, who we, we love to compete with. It's significantly, slower, significantly lower than our maple-drinking, horse-riding friends in North America, and sadly and quite embarrassingly, it's even significantly close, lower than the Americans who we often try to um, compare our healthcare system and how well-functioning it is, and that's true, um, but when it comes to prevention and public health, we're even behind the Americans. No offence to any Americans in the audience. So what can we do within the community as individuals, as a um, community of, as a very powerful coalition and a very powerful voice, um, and as a healthcare um, as, a, as a healthcare system, well, the battle on tobacco is not over and continuing to support um, very strong legislation on tobacco, looking at whether we need to have even eventually a ban or beyond, you know, looking at, as some countries are, of under a certain age, tobacco will become an illegal product. Alcohol, Australia, we produce a lot of alcohol and so, in fact, we've, we've uh, challenged many of the same types of legislative um, uh, aims and ambitions that other uh, neighbours in the region have tried to undertake. We've been very successful in tobacco and become kind of the world leader. Others in the region have tried to do it around alcohol and we've blocked them in the same way others have tried to block us. And we need to really think um, how do we balance the public health agenda, the regional public health agenda, with our very strong um, alcohol industry. Obviously some of the major ways forward in terms of, and, and there have been some great um, new evidence this year, and we can talk about this in a second, but around pricing policies, it needs to be more, more expensive. Um, looking at age of access, looking at packaging and packaging warnings, and looking at advertising and marketing. Um, do we eventually have ban similar bans on advertising and marketing? Not necessarily all need to dress up as a tomato, um, but uh, early child education in how and what we eat and healthcare um, has never been more important and we have great programs happening around the country, the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Project that just lost its funding, um, for example. Uh, that should be embedded in the national curriculum and that should be part of all, um, all 
uh, experience for all young children going to school, regardless of their socioeconomic status. We should also be, as a group, supporting and calling for, for harder pricing policies, particularly around food and food affordability. The fact that large swathes of southeast Australia now are affected by, particularly the, the poorer suburbs, are affected by what we call food deserts, where poor quality food is much easier to buy than good quality food. We know globally good, good quality food is getting more expensive. Um, and Australia, in fact, sadly, is one of the only markets of fast food in the Western world that's continuing to grow. I think as a profession we need to understand more, we didn't get a lot into this today because this starts to get very political, but um, under, just at least understand how the food system works and how it relates to, um, to what we eat. And you know, when governments call for the public health community and for nurses and doctors, you know, it's not our role to be telling people how and what to eat. Well, when Nestle spends $100 million a year on advertising and Coca-Cola spends $50 million a year on advertising, which is exactly uh, telling people how and what to eat, um, I would argue that it absolutely is the role of doctors and of nurses and of the public health community to tell people to at least to be giving them better information on how and what to eat. And this comes back to, as Margaret Chan, the head of the WHO, has said a few times, and I paraphrase her here, uh, the mosquito for malaria never had a lobby or sued government for taking action um, against it in the same way as food companies can and will and have. Um, and that's something we have to understand as part of the public health community. I think as a, as a, as a group of um, very powerful voice in the healthcare system here in New South Wales, but also nationally, as a group we should be championing opportunities much more for prevention, for early diagnosis and for counselling aimed at behaviour change, and in particular healthcare literacy. The old adage of education doesn't change behaviour, I think, is possibly being threatened by the fact that there's such a that we're obsessed with food, we'll watch it endlessly, but largely we've forgotten what, what it is and how to use it. And also looking at the urban environment. The vast majority of Australians live in an urban setting now for the first time in history, as I said, the, last, the, the, the majority of the world lives in an urban setting. So looking at how we design cities, looking at how we actually make health the easier default as opposed to almost impossible uh, for people is going to be a really important thing for the healthcare community to get involved with. The healthcare community and the urban planning community never talk and that's, ins that's completely insane and, and something that is changing but needs to change uh, more quickly. And finally, um, strengthening and really, I think, building the value of primary care. Primary care has always, whether it's general practice, whether it's nurses, whether it's um, allied health, um, whether it's midwives, primary care has always been kind of the poorer cousin of uh, tertiary care. It's kind of like where, where less intelligent clinicians go. And that's not the same everywhere in the world and it's absolutely not true. It's uh, the worst case scenario if we want to create a, health, uh, a sustainable, effective um, healthcare system that we can actually afford. And we really need to be strengthening um, and valuing primary care as, as, a, as, a, as an important part of that. Was, that was time up. Um, as an important part, as a crucial cornerstone of a sustainable future healthcare system and a way of delivering um, the prevention that we so desperately need to be focusing on. Now, um, when I'm not working as a clinician, uh, as an academic, I don't work as a clinician, I'm sorry, um, I miss it, but I don't, uh, I've been making some short films around the world with colleagues to bring these attentions to light. We don't have time today, um, but I will make this available to everyone. This is a film I made um, in Mongolia showing that 
the NCD burden is not just a problem of our own, but actually a problem of countries like Mongolia as well. Um, and all of this will be available to you um, via a link on Twitter and also through the website after the presentation. So finally, I just want to leave you with a quote from Margaret Chan's recent speech uh, to, the, um, to the International Nursing Conference. And I think it really sums up the, the take-home message, um, hopefully from this talk, for you as uh, a, a really crucial, important, but also very powerful, politically powerful uh, group of individuals um, who now can't see half the quote. Oh, there we go. The, profession, the nursing profession must transform the way health services, and I've added, and policies are organised. You know where the health of this community needs to run, needs you to run, and you're fully competent to move in those directions. No one can afford to ignore your potential to change things for the better. And this potential couldn't be more so than for NCDs. Thank you very much. So there you have it, the very informative and entertaining Dr Alessandro De Mayo. If you'd like more information on NCDs and Alessandro's campaign, check out www.ncdfree.org and you can link to his presentation slides here through the podcast or visit www.nswnma.asn.au. Thanks once again for listening today and don't forget you can send any questions or feedback you might have to the Shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au and we'll have another guest speaker for you next week. So see you then.